Uh, ladies and gentlemen, could I bring the meeting to order? As I think you all realise, or you wouldn't be here, it really is impossible to do justice to Lord Rees of Ludlow in an introduction of this sort. If I were to deal adequately with his achievements and his career, it would really leave no time at all for the lecture. And you've come to hear the lecture, not a resume of his achievements and career. So let me praise you to an inordinate degree. He has held three posts, any one of which would represent the summit of many people's ambitions and would represent the summit of a glittering career. He's been president of the Royal Society, astronomer royal, and master of Trinity College, Cambridge. He's also a knight, a member of the House of Lords, and he is a holder of the Order of Merit, which, as I'm sure you know, is in the personal gift of the Queen, and therefore in a slightly different and more exclusive category than most other honours. His work has been recognised throughout the world by the award of prizes and by the conferment of honorary degrees. And he is, I think, truly in line of descent from that other great Trinity man who was also an astronomer and also president of the Royal Society, namely Isaac Newton. I won't speak of his work, partly for reasons of time, and partly because I wouldn't be able to do justice to it, and partly because his lecture would be a better way of dealing with that than anything that I might say. But what I would like to say is that in addition to his astonishing learning, in addition to his great achievements, he does have the ability to make his ideas accessible to those of us who uh, do not have quite the same understanding of the issues that he's dealing with. And those of you who have heard or read his wreath lectures or the book he wrote on whether the human race is going to survive the 21st century will be able to testify to the fact that he is able to convey important, complex and difficult concepts and ideas with remarkable clarity. And that, I think, is not the least of his achievements. He deals not only with high science, but also with the interface between science, ethics, and politics. Martin Rees is truly a polymath whose mind ranges across the whole range of human experience, and we are very honoured indeed and very fortunate to have him here to give our lecture this evening. Martin. Chancellor, Vice-Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, it is indeed a great pleasure and privilege to be giving this uh, special annual lecture at the university. And I should say I'm going to give a sort of cultural lecture. It's about science, but thinking of science as something which is not only the basis of our modern lives, but part of our culture. Indeed, I think we should realise that science is the most truly universal culture, spanning all nations and faiths. Protons, proteins and Pythagoras are the same from China to Peru. And my own subject of astronomy, which I'll focus on, is specially universal. 
One other thing about astronomy, astronomy is one of the oldest of all sciences. It's the oldest, perhaps, except for medicine. And at the risk of insulting any medics in the audience, I'll say it's probably the first to do more good than harm. <laughs> and it was, of course, first pursued for the calendar and navigation, but subsequently it's been uh, pursued for uh, other reasons. And it is perhaps the most universal environmental science, because the night sky is the one part of our environment that we share with everyone throughout the world, throughout history. All humans have gazed up at the stars in wonder and mystery and interpreted it in their own way. And, as I'll try to explain, we have, we think, a deeper understanding now than the ancients did. And one of the first people to think about it seriously, already mentioned by the Chancellor, was Isaac Newton, who was probably the greatest intellect of the last millennium, and he was indeed an alumnus of my college in Cambridge, but he was a deeply unattractive character. Um, he was solitary and obsessive when young, vain and vindictive in his later years. Uh, I'd far rather have met Darwin, and uh, I would even claim myself to be a more pleasant person than Newton. <laughs> um, Newton, of course, famously showed that the force that makes the apple fall is the same as the force that holds the moon and planet in their orbits. And he must have thought about space travel. This picture is from the English edition of his book, Principia, and it's still the neatest way I know to explain to students the concept of orbital flight. You can see what's happening. Uh, a cannon is being fired from a mountaintop, and if the cannonball goes fast enough, then the Earth curves downwards, no more slowly than the trajectory curves downwards. It goes into orbit. Now, Newton calculated that the speed the cannonball needs to have to go into orbit is about 18,000 miles an hour, far beyond, of course, the uh, cannon of his time. And as everyone knows, it wasn't until 1957 that the Soviet Sputnik went into orbit, the first uh, artifact to do so. And uh, the Russians uh, quickly put uh, a dog into orbit, and then, four years later, Gagarin, the first man in space. And uh, I'm reminded of an uh, uh, anecdote. Uh, Gagarin uh, came to England uh, soon after his flight and was hugely mobbed by the public. And Harry Macmillan, the Prime Minister at the time, said it would have been twice as bad if they'd sent a dog. <laughs> um, and... Uh, Whatever we think of Macmillan's politics, he was uh, someone with a certain wit. Um, well, uh, only eight years after Gagarin, we had uh, uh, pictures like this, this picture, iconic for environmentalists, showing the Earth as viewed by astronauts orbiting the moon. The Earth's delicate biosphere contrasting with the sterile moonscape where Neil Armstrong made his one small step in 1969. And the Apollo astronauts went there, and I treasure this uh, photo signed for me a few years ago by seven of the Apollo astronauts. 
And it was only 12 years from the first Sputnik to the landings on the moon. And at that time, I think most of us would have expected that 40 years later, there'd have been people on Mars, something like that. But 2001 was not like Arthur C. Clarke's vision at all. And the reason, of course, was that the motive for the Apollo landings was superpower rivalry. And the political impetus was lost after uh, the Americans had achieved this goal. And it was a very long time ago. Uh, I suspect a large fragment of the audience can remember uh, this, but uh, for our students, it's ancient history. They know that the Americans landed men on the moon. They know the Egyptians built pyramids. But these both seem ancient history, activities motivated by rather arcane and mysterious motives. And since the last men returned from the moon 40 years ago, uh, hundreds have been in low Earth orbit, many in the International Space Station shown here, but none has gone further. But of course, although manned space flight has languished, we now depend on space in our everyday lives, GPS, sat-navs, weather forecasting and communications. And space science has burgeoned, as has robotic exploration. Robots have been a lot further. And indeed, they've been backed close-up pictures of various distinctive worlds. And I'll just show you a few pictures going out to Mars and beyond. Well, before we got, get to Mars, this is a picture which was taken uh, by a spacecraft on the way to Mars when it was about 16 times further away from us than the moon is. And you see this picture, which is rather beautiful, which shows the Earth and the moon uh, with the uh, uh, sun, of course, on the right-hand side. Um, and this was uh, taken on the way to Mars by a space probe, which then went to Mars and sent back from Mars pictures like this. This is the uh, European Mars Express, which sent back pictures of the Martian surface. Let me show a few of them here. This is a gorge about 10,000 meters deep on the surface of Mars. Uh, you may have read last year about evidence for uh, still possible a flow of water on Mars. There was water in the past, but th this shows pictures taken about a month apart, showing something happening even now on these slopes on Mars. And, of course, there have been uh, uh, craft landed on Mars. This is the Phoenix space probe, which is able to dig to a depth of one meter and analyze in situ the soil. Going out beyond Mars, the next planet you encounter is Jupiter. Uh, here is Jupiter, and here are the four moons, uh, first discovered by Galileo, and uh, they are uh, extremely distinctive uh, Io, here it is, is a uh, volcanic and sulfurous place. On the other hand, Europa is much colder. It's got ice all over its surface. Here's a close-up of some of the ice, and there probably is an ocean underneath the surface of Europa. Going beyond <coughs> Jupiter, we get to Saturn, and the uh, uh, NASA Cassini spacecraft some years ago, uh, reached Saturn, and it's still going around there. And let me show you one rather beautiful picture it took. This is a picture showing uh, the sun being eclipsed by Saturn. 
So the uh, Cassini spacecraft is beyond Saturn at such a distance that the uh, uh, image of Saturn just covers it. So this is a, an eclipse of Saturn uh, by uh, the uh, eclipse of the Sun by Saturn. And up in the top left is a little dot, and that's the Earth, very tiny from this huge distance. The Cassini spacecraft carried in its cargo bay, as it were, a smaller robotic probe called Huygens, designed by the European Space Agency. Huygens was supposed to land on Titan, the giant moon of Saturn. And this is an artist's impression of what was supposed to happen. It was supposed to uh, open a parachute and land on the surface of Titan, about which very little was known. And this is a great achievement in robotics, because it takes a radio signal hours to get to Saturn and back. So this wasn't being controlled from the Earth. It was on its own for two weeks when it was released from Cassini. And it did exactly what it was supposed to do. The picture on the left and in the centre were taken on the way down, and on the right, that's where it landed. Well, this looks a rather attractive sort of place with rivers and a little lake, um, but the temperature is minus 160 degrees centigrade, uh, and that river is liquid methane. And those little lumps on the right are methane ice. So it's not uh, a very salubrious place, no beachfront property there, really. Well, this was a pioneer robotic probe, and I would hope that within the coming decades, all the bodies of the solar system will be explored and mapped by flotillas of tiny robotic spacecraft. But will people follow them? This is Harrison Schmidt, the last man on the moon 40 years ago. I think the practical case for sending people into space gets weaker all the time with every advance in robotics and miniaturization. Indeed, as a scientist or practical man, I see little purpose in sending people into space at all. But as a human being, I am an enthusiast for manned missions, and I hope that some people now living will walk on Mars. But they will go as an adventure, not for any practical purpose. And I don't think that this expedition would be politically or financially feasible, except as a cut-price venture, perhaps privately funded, spearheaded by individuals prepared to accept higher risks than NASA or ESA could impose on civilian astronauts. It's got to be a high-risk enterprise. Indeed, the first people to go to Mars will probably go with one-way tickets. It's much more expensive to come back than to go there. Uh, and when I was asked, I said I would be happy to go when I was a bit older. <laughs> um, well, I'd like to emphasize that there is no practical case. People sometimes say we should go into space to uh, escape the, the, the world's problems. But there's nowhere in space that's as clement as the top of Everest or the South Pole. So no one is going to go into space except as an adventure with the same motive as those who uh, uh, do climb Everest. Well, one of the things everyone asks is, is there any evidence for life anywhere elsewhere in the solar system? The answer so far is no. Uh, the various places have been thought about, Mars, Titan, meteorites, or comets, or maybe under the ice on Europa. 
We don't know. There may be some life, but I think no one expects any very advanced life. Freeze-dried bacteria, not much more than that. But let's therefore extend our horizons beyond our solar system to the realm of the stars, because there things are much more exciting and moving faster, and there is real hope that we will be able to make intelligent estimates of how likely it is that life exists. Well, here we have the stars, and one of the things we've learnt just in the last decade, essentially, is that these stars we see in the sky aren't just twinkling points of light. They are stars like the sun, most of which are orbited by retinues of planets, just as the sun is orbited by the Earth and the other planets. We've suspected this for a long time, but only in the last decade or so have we achieved any evidence that this is the case. And this evidence is still indirect. It's derived in two ways, and let me mention both of them. If there's a planet orbiting a star, then what actually happens is that both the star and the planet orbit around their centre of mass, what's called the barycenter. The planet goes round in a nearly circular orbit. The star goes round in a much smaller circle because it's more massive. And, for instance, due to the orbit of Jupiter, the Sun is moving in a little circle at a speed of a few metres per second. Now, even though the planets can't be seen, spectroscopy is precise enough that it's possible, by looking at the light from the star, to detect the small change in Doppler shift as it goes round in this little orbit, even though the motion is only a few metres per second. And observations of this kind have been made of hundreds of stars. And, of course, if you know uh, what this velocity is, you can infer, obviously, the orbital period of the planet and also the mass of the period, the mass of the planet. And in this way, several hundred planets have been discovered. Don't worry about this, but this is just a list of, uh, of stars um, and, and the planets they have around them with the size of the, the orbits. And there are some... Uh, stars with several planets. There's one that's been found to have seven planets orbiting around it by doing the sort of Fourier analysis of the, uh, of the Doppler effect. The planets discovered by this technique, however, are only big ones, rather like Saturn or Jupiter, the giants of our solar system. This technique isn't sensitive enough to detect an Earth-like planet because the Earth induces motions of only a few centimetres per second in the Sun and that's not big enough to be detected by the Doppler effect. But there is another technique that's now being used which is capable of revealing planets no bigger than the Earth orbiting other stars. And here the principle is very simple. If a planet transits across the face of a star, and of course you may know there'll be a transit of Venus uh, early in June, where justice will happen, then even if the star is just a point of light, then if a planet moves across it, then it blocks out a bit of the light from the star. And for instance, if the Earth moves in front of us, the Sun, and this is observed from a great distance, then because the Earth has about 1% of the radius, 10 to the minus 4 of the solid angle, the brightness of the star will appear to dip by one part in 10,000. Very small effect. But this is being looked for. The 
Kepler spacecraft, which has been in orbit for three years now, is looking at an area of sky about seven degrees across and measuring the brightness of 100,000 stars in that part of the sky to a precision of one part in 100,000 and doing this several times an hour for each star. The aim is to find instances where you see these regular dips. And, of course, you've got to have three dips coming around before you're sure you've got a regular orbit. And already, it seems they have found more than 1,000. And, incidentally, uh, the data stream can be made available to amateurs. Uh, you can uh, get the time series on one of these stars and analyze it in your computer. In fact, on a, the uh, stargazing TV program last month, you may have seen some uh, amateur who found a planet by analyzing the uh, time series for a particular star and uh, finding these regular dips. So we now know that Earth-like planets are common, and these planets have a variety of properties. Um, there are some uh, which are very close in, and there's one case where there's a, a planet orbiting a double star. So if you were on that planet, you'd have two suns in your sky. In fact, uh, Brian Aldiss wrote a science fiction story in the 1970s about that, and he was really chuffed when people found there really was a planet um, <laughs> with, um, two, uh, uh, with two suns in its sky. And this is just a, a simulation of a system that's been discovered which has got a, a, a six or seven planets in it. Well, these techniques that I've mentioned, the Doppler effect on the star or the uh, um, effect of the transits, these are indirect. What we'd really like to do, of course, is to actually see the planets. And that's much harder. To see how hard it is, let's imagine that you were on some other planet around another star with a big telescope and looking at our solar system from, say, 50 light years. Then from that distance, the sun would look an ordinary star and the Earth would look, in Carl Sagan's nice phrase, a pale blue dot, very close in the sky to its star, our sun, and billions of times fainter. Very hard to detect. It's like looking for a firefly next to a searchlight. But if these hypothetical aliens could observe the pale blue dot, they could learn quite a bit about it. The shade of blue will be slightly different depending on whether the Pacific Ocean or the landmass of Asia was facing them. So you could infer that there were continents and oceans and the length of the day and probably something about the climate and the seasons and maybe even by looking at the uh, reflected light, something about the atmosphere. Well, we can't do that, but in 20 years, we'll be able to do just that type of observation for Earth-like planets orbiting other stars. We do this either from a big array in space, but more likely from a telescope on the ground. Telescopes on the ground are not nearly as expensive as big ones in space, and the European Southern Observatory, which already has the world's best telescopes, has a plan to build in the next 10 years um, what's called... Um, in a rather unoriginal nomenclature, the extremely large telescope. <laughs> uh, it has uh, its, uh, uh, its mirror would be 39 metres across. 
And uh, this room is about sort of 15 metres across, so think of a, of a mirror whose diameter is three times the width of this room. It has actually not one sheet of glass, of course, but a mosaic of short, smaller ones. And this uh, instrument would be able to uh, uh, image Earth-like planets around stars uh, 10 or 20 or 30 light-years away and draw the kind of inferences which, uh, in my story, the aliens could draw about the Earth. Well, the next question we want to ask is, is there going to be life on any of these distant worlds? And biology is a much harder subject than astronomy, and the answer is we just don't know. We don't even know how life began on the Earth. We know how it evolved, but we don't understand the transition from the non-living to the living. And therefore, we can't say how likely it is. We can't say whether it was a rare fluke on the Earth or whether the transition to life is something that would happen in any environment. If we understood that, and this is clearly a big challenge for the most terrestrial biologists to understand the origin of life, then we would know how likely it is that life exists elsewhere and we'd have a better idea of where to look. But at the moment, we should just uh, uh, look for any evidence we can, in my opinion. The sensible thing to do is to start off uh, looking at Earth-like planets, but we shouldn't restrict attention to them. Uh, we shouldn't be too anthropocentric. There may be other kinds of life which are quite, quite different. And uh, indeed, uh, science fiction writers have lots of ideas, balloon-like creatures floating in an atmosphere of a planet like Jupiter, swarms of intelligent insects and all kinds of ideas. And incidentally, uh, I tell my students, better to read first-class science fiction than second-rate science. It's, uh, <laughs> it's more interesting and no more likely to be wrong. And it stimulates, <laughs> it stimulates our imagination. Um, but uh, um, although I think it's worth using all possible techniques to look for evidence of life, uh, simple life and advanced life, we don't know. We don't know how likely simple life is. Still less do we know what the chances are that simple life, once it got started, would evolve into a complex biosphere containing uh, any creatures that might be intelligent. But nonetheless, it's worth the search. Of course, there are some people who think they know the answer already. That they think they've been visited by uh, uh, aliens or abducted by them. And in my role as astronomer royal, I get letters from these people. Um, I respond in two ways. I say, first, do they really think that if the aliens had made the huge effort to come through interstellar space to the Earth, would they just make a few corn circles, meet a few well-known cranks, and go away again? <laughs> it seems unlikely. And the second thing I say is that these people should write to each other and not to me. <laughs> well, um, despite feeling that there's no evidence yet for intelligent life, it's worth the search. And as you know, there are uh, groups searching for seemingly artificial signals. And if we were to detect something artificial, like a string of prime numbers or the digits of pi, even though it might seem rather boring, then it would carry the momentous message that concepts of logic and physics weren't limited to, as it were, the hardware in human skulls, but existed somewhere else. And that would be a, a colossal discovery. I'm not holding my breath, but I think it's good that people should do it. Now, if we did find something out there, it might be organic, it might be uh, uh, some machine, uh, 
an artefact made by some long extinct organic life. Um, what would we have in common? Well, we'd have maths in common and we would have physics in common and astronomy because even if the aliens lived on planet Zog and had seven tentacles, they'd be made of the same kind of atoms as us. They'd gaze out if they had eyes at the same cosmos and they trace their origins back to the same Big Bang. And if we detected a signal, uh, we would, of course, uh, um, uh, have time to think of a measured response, but, of course, the signal would take many years in transit, so there'd be no scope for snappy repartee, as it were, <laughs> even if we do discover these people. On the other hand, uh, the searches may fail. It could be that Earth's intra-biosphere is unique, even though we think there are zillions of planets. And that may be disappointing for the searchers, certainly, but it would have its upside, because it would imply that we need be less cosmically modest, because our tiny planet could then be the most important place in the galaxy. Perhaps even a seed from its life in the far future could spread through the entire galaxy. Well... Let me go back from the complexities of biology to the simplicities of the inanimate cosmos, the stars. We do understand quite a lot about stars. They are sort of gravitationally bound fusion reactors kept going by nuclear fusion, and we can understand them because although stars live a very long time compared to astronomers, we can see lots of them. And just as if you'd never seen a tree before and you went into a forest, you could infer the life cycle of trees by looking around at the saplings, the dead trees, etc. Likewise, we can understand how stars evolve. And we see places where they're, for, where they're forming. Uh, they form in uh, uh, places like this, the um, uh, Eagle Nebula. There's enough dusty gas in here to make uh, many hundreds of new stars. And incidentally, um, this is a cartoon which shows why we're not surprised that planetary systems are common. When a dusty gas cloud contracts under its own gravity to make a star, starting off very large and diffuse, then even if it's spinning very slowly, then as it contracts, it'll spin faster, like the ballerina pulling in her arms. And so what will happen is the successive stages of this cartoon that the gas cloud contracts, and then a star lights up in the centre, but it spins off around it a dusty disk, and the dust agglomerates into rocks and into planets. That's how we believe the planets in our solar system formed, and this is a generic process, so we're not surprised to find that there are planets, um, but uh, uh, only in the last decade have we found many. And, of course, it's very important to see how the planetary systems differ from ours, because uh, we want to know, is our planetary system typical or not? Because when you only have one system, then uh, you're rather frustrated. It's like if you... Um, uh, uh, doing animal behaviour, you wouldn't just study one rat because it might have hang-ups of its own and weren't typical. So up till now, we've only had one planetary system, but now we have a whole lot, and we can ask what is uh, typical about them and what is exceptional. Well, we see stars forming in places like the Eagle Nebula, and we see stars dying. This is a star dying, and the sun will look like this in about six billion years when it flings off its outer layers leaving behind a dense uh, cinder uh, in the centre. And big stars die in a more violent way. This is a famous object in the sky called the Crab Nebula, uh, which is uh, the remnant of a supernova explosion when a massive star 
explodes at the end of its life. Um, and this particular object uh, is the debris from an explosion that was witnessed and recorded by Chinese astronomers in the year 1054 AD. I don't know if anyone reads Chinese here, um, but this is the record of the uh, uh, Chinese emperor's court astronomer, I guess the counterpart of the astronomer royal in that system, uh, who reported that the guest star had appeared and become brighter than the full moon and then disappeared after a, uh, after a um, few weeks. And we see in that location this expanding debris. Now, you might think that a system like that is far away and long ago and irrelevant, but thanks to this man here, Fred Hoyle, um, Cambridge professor, uh, we know that we would not exist were it not for these supernovae. The reason is that in the course of its life, a star transmutes pristine hydrogen into helium, then helium into carbon, oxygen, and all the way up to the periodic table. And then, when it's used up its nuclear fuel, it faces a crisis, its core implodes, and it blows off its outer layers, as you saw in the crab. And that processed material then merges with the interstellar gas and will then make new stars. Um, this is, uh, if I had a two-hour lecture, I'd go into all this, but I'm not going to, but this uh, is uh, um, the sort of recycling process that happens in the interstellar uh, medium. Uh, um, pristine gas goes into stars, and then stars, at least the big ones, which become supernovae, throw it out again, and then new stars form. And in this way, the elements of the periodic table are built up, and this theory, pioneered by Fred Hoyle, can explain why carbon and oxygen are common, why gold and uranium are rare. And they tell us that we ourselves are the ashes of long-dead stars, or if you're uh, less romantic, where the nuclear waste from the fuel that made stars shine, and each of us contains atoms that came from thousands of different stars all over the Milky Way, which all exploded more than four and a half billion years ago, before our solar system formed. So we are linked to the stars in a more intimate way than even the astrologers have ever thought. And that's, I think, a rather nice and poetic thought. Well, going to a larger scale, uh, since uh, we're in Bath, I thought I should uh, mention Herschel, um, who was the first person to uh, realize that our stars are um, uh, in a sort of disk-like galaxy. This is his famous uh, picture of the stars he could see, and this is a modern picture um, of the, the inner part of the Milky Way. But because we are in our own galaxy... Uh, we can't see it very clearly because of all the dust that's around, but we are in a galaxy which contains about 100 billion stars. And if you could get 2 million light years away from the Earth and look back at our galaxy, it would look something like this. This is, of course, as many of you know, the Andromeda Galaxy, our nearest big neighbour in space. This is a disk viewed obliquely which contains 100 billion stars orbiting around a central hub. And our galaxy, if we could get two million light years away and look back, would be just like this. And galaxies like this, assemblages of stars and gas, are the dominant features of the universe when we go to a large scale. And, of course, Herschel wasn't aware of other galaxies. Indeed, it wasn't until the 1920s that people were aware that our Milky Way galaxy was just one of many. And here's picture of another galaxy. This is a disk that's viewed nearly edge on. 
Now, you may think it can be very hard to learn anything about galaxies because they're far away, we can't do experiments on them, we can't crash them together like uh, uh, a physicist can crash together particles in an accelerator and they uh, have huge timescales. It takes about 100 million years for the stars to orbit around the central hub. You might think we're very helpless. But computers can help because in the virtual world of our computer we can do a speeded up version and we can do an experiment in our virtual world and we can ask what would happen if two galaxies collided. And this is the sort of thing that does happen. You have two galaxies falling together and the computation takes account of the gravity of all the stars on all the others and you see that you end up with a sort of train wreck like this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we can do um, simulations like this for various assumptions about the masses, the amount of gas, the amount of dark matter, etc., and see which fits best. And then we can look in the sky. And as well as the galaxies I showed you, we see systems like this. This is a real system of two galaxies. And having done those simulations, then you can probably convince yourself that what's happened here is two galaxies have got dangerously close. Each is pulling out a tidal plume on the other. And if we came back in 100 million years, then these two galaxies would have merged into one, as in that movie. And incidentally, the Andromeda galaxy is heading for us. Um, and uh, so there will be a big collision between the Andromeda galaxy and our Milky Way in about four billion years. That's billion, not million, so you needn't worry too much. <laughs> yeah. um, also, when we look in the sky uh, further out, we see huge numbers of galaxies. Uh, this is just a, a chart showing all the galaxies within a few hundred million light years, um, and uh, galaxies are known to be, uh, uh, to be in clusters. We're in a cluster containing Andromeda and a few others, and the galaxies are clustered together, and this, this shows the spatial distribution of the ones near to us. But when we look at the universe on a very big scale, out to distant galaxies, then there's one very important phenomenon uh, which... Uh, uh, dominates everything else, and this is so-called expansion of the universe, the fact that all the galaxies are receding from us. And the first person to uh, uh, realize this was Edwin Hubble. Um, there he is there, very heavy smoker, as you can see. And uh, he, uh, uh, he was uh, the first person to realize that um, the galaxies were moving away, and the further they were from us, the faster they were moving away. That's... Uh, shown symbolically by these arrows, the longer arrows, further away. Now, you might think that this implies that we're in some special central position and everything's fleeing away from us. But it doesn't imply that. To explain why it doesn't, let me give you uh, an analogy here. Uh, this is one of Escher's pictures, an infinite lattice. Um, supposing that you were sitting on one of these vertices and supposing all the rods lengthened at a steady rate then you'd see the other vertices moving away from you at a speed that would be proportional to the number of intervening links. So you'd see the expansion around you. And wherever you sat, whichever vertex you were on, you'd see the same pattern. And this is quite a good uh, analogy for the expanding universe if you imagine the galaxies linked together by rods and the rods all length. But there's one feature of the actual universe that's not... Uh, <coughs> fully uh, incorporated in this particular metaphor, but is better shown by another Escher picture, Angels and Devils. And this comes from realising that when we look at a galaxy a long way away, 
we see it as it was a long time ago, because the lights take a long time to get to us. And so when we look at far out, we look back to when the universe was more close-packed, when the rods were shorter. So what we actually see when we look back along our past light cone, as it's called, is more like this picture, where as you look out towards the, your horizon, towards the most distant objects that lights had time to reach us from, then you find everything closer together, closer packed. And we can look very far back. This picture shows a patch of sky which would look blank through a small telescope. It's a patch of sky so small it would take 100 patches like that to cover the area in the full moon. But with a big telescope, even in this tiny patch of sky, there are hundreds of smudges. And each of these smudges is a galaxy, many fully the equal of our galaxy, looking so small and faint because of the immense distance. Many of these are so far away that the light set out 10 billion years ago, long before the Earth formed. We see them when they've only just formed. Most of this stuff in them is still gas. It hasn't turned into stars at all. And uh, I'm not going to show um, This is the only technical slide I'm going to show you. Uh, we can take the spectrum of the light from these distant ones, and one of the most distant ones has uh, a spectrum, and it shows the light. And what I want to draw your attention to is that um, uh, in this tracing, the strongest uh, emission is this feature on the left hand, the left hand there, um, but uh, for the physicists, I want to emphasize that this is the strongest light in the hydrogen spectrum called Lyman Alpha, and in the lab, this is um, in the far ultraviolet at 1,200 angstroms, and it shifted uh, to a wavelength eight times longer, um, so it's now, it appears in the infrared, and that's because the recession is so close to the speed of light that uh, it shifts the uh, ultraviolet to the infrared, and another way to think of this is that when that light set out, the rods in the lattice were eight times shorter. Everything was eight times closer together. But what about the still earlier stage when everything was so close packed that there weren't any galaxies? Well, again, <clears throat> oh, let me just mention that uh, that particular object I showed you um, was not a normal galaxy. It was a quasar where it had some extra brightness from the fact that in its center there was a black hole uh, which is swallowing up gas. And uh, the most powerful objects in the universe um, uh, are where there's a black hole and gas swirls into it, gets magnetized and very hot. And that particular distant object was much brighter than a normal galaxy because it has a black hole in the center. Well, going back to the very early universe, uh, one of the most remarkable discoveries, which was made more, more than 40 years ago, is that intergalactic space isn't completely cold. It's warmed to about three degrees above absolute zero by weak microwaves. About three degrees above absolute zero. And if you measure these at different frequencies, you find they've got what's called a black body spectrum. And this radiation is, as it were, the afterglow of creation. It's the uh, uh, remnants of when the entire universe was squeezed hot and dense, like the center of a star. As the universe expanded, the radiation cooled and diluted, wavelength stretched, it's now dilute microwaves. It fills the universe. It's got nowhere else to go. And this is a relic of the, so, of the hot early stages of the universe. And because of evidence like that, we have a picture of how our universe evolved from a mysterious, dense beginning. 
and some key steps are shown in this time chart here. Um, the universe, um, uh, the most distant galaxies we see, the ones I showed you are uh, sent out their lights when the universe is about tenth its present age. The radiation is a relic of a much earlier stage, and there's other evidence back to one second. And indeed, we can with confidence talk about what the universe was like back to about a nanosecond. That's the time when everything in the universe, every particle, had about the same amount of energy as can be achieved in the LHC in Geneva. And everything in our present universe was squeezed down to something the size of our solar system. And we have fair confidence in how, from that dense beginning, uh, the universe uh, evolved to its present state. And one thing which people sometimes are puzzled about is how, from that amorphous beginning, do we end up with structures? Because the so-called second law of thermodynamics says that structures tend to get washed out, whereas we start off with an amorphous uh, universe, we end up with structure. And the reason for that is that as the universe expands, slightly over-dense regions lag behind more and more and eventually condense out. And I'm going to show you a movie which shows a part of the universe where uh, these expansions are subtracted out, and you see, as time goes on, this is time measured in giga years. So this speeds up by 10 to 17 from real time, and it started off uh, unstructured, but as time goes on, then the over-densities increase their density contrast. And uh, we believe that this is how the structures in our universe formed. And incidentally, um, if I had more time, I would say that in that, in that calculation, um, the initial conditions aren't at random. We observe the microwave background over the sky, and we know what the small fluctuations were in the early universe. You feed them in to the starting conditions of your computation, run things forward, and you end up with something which is actually like our universe now. So there is a genuine uh, um, link between observations we make of the microwave background and of the present-day universe. Well, we'd like to ask, why is the universe expanding the way it is? Why does it contain the mixture of um, atoms and radiation that we observe? And as I say, we can extrapolate back to a nanosecond, but that's not enough. Most people suspect that the key features of the universe were imprinted by physics, which is very uncertain, because when we get back to within the first nanosecond, conditions were so extreme that we lose our foothold in experiment. Conditions were far more extreme than we could ever achieve here on Earth. So now it gets more speculative. But it is thought by many cosmologists that the key features were imprinted uh, when the universe was that size. Not merely squeezed down to the size of the solar system, but to the size of a tennis ball. And at that stage, uh, fluctuations um, were produced and the expansion was set up. Well, um, I won't go into this, but I should at this stage, indeed perhaps even before this stage, have put in here a warning sign to say that although you should take very seriously what I say about the universe back to a second or so, indeed those inferences are at least as well-based as anything a geologist tells you about the early history of the Earth, when we get back into conditions beyond the realm of ordinary uh, uh, terrestrial physics, then, of course, things get more and more uncertain. But... 
we do have some interesting questions which uh, um, the university, universe uh, faces with. Uh, one question is just how big is the universe? How extensive is the physical reality within the remit of science? Well, I've told you that we observe this huge universe, uh, uh, all these galaxies, uh, out to 10 billion years. But that's not all there is. Any more than if you're in the middle of an ocean, you look at the, um, uh, at your horizon, but you don't think the ocean stops just beyond your horizon. We have every reason to think that our universe goes on much further than the horizon. Um, we don't know how far, probably thousands of times further, and it could, in fact, go so much further that all cosm um, combinatorial options are fulfilled. And there may be somewhere, uh, there may be uh, another lecture room like this with the same sort of people in it. But that would be far, far, far beyond the horizon. You, uh, the universe could be that vast. And that's not all. Because what I've talked about now is just the aftermath of our Big Bang, as it were. But it's also possible that our Big Bang is not the only one, and there were others. One idea is that uh, just as you can imagine uh, that a lot of ants on a sheet of paper think that's their two-dimensional universe and are unaware of another population of ants on a parallel sheet of paper, so one dimension up, there may be another universe just that far away from ours, but we're not aware of it because that distance is measured in some fourth spatial dimension and we're imprisoned in our three. And there are other ideas. There's an idea called eternal inflation, uh, according to which uh, um, universes are sort of expanding and uh, popping off, so our universe is just one of many. Well, so much for these uh, speculations. Let me uh, uh, now um, uh, give uh, this picture, which is what I'd use if I wanted a logo for my research group. Um, it's, uh, it's called an Ouroboros. And you can see what it does. It shows on the left the very small and then the everyday world going round to the very large on the right. And one thing that we learn in astronomy is that there are links between left and right, between micro-world and cosmos. We know that the everyday world of cells, people, and mountains is determined by chemistry, how atoms stick together. The properties of stars are determined by the nuclei within those atoms. No, I didn't have time to mention it. The properties of galaxies are determined by the uh, gravitational pull of dark matter, which is some subnuclear particle as well. So there's a link across there. This left-hand side here is the realm of the quantum. And this right-hand side here is the realm of gravity and Einstein's theory. And as you probably know, the two great pillars of 20th century science are quantum theory and Einstein's theory. And these theories haven't yet been meshed together. And that doesn't matter for most scientists, because if you're a chemist, you don't care about the gravitational pull between the atoms in a molecule. It's very, very weak. Conversely, if you're an astronomer, you don't care about the quantum fuzziness in the orbits of planets because it's tiny, because they're so heavy. But if we really want to understand the beginning of the universe, we do need a theory that combines <coughs> quantum effects and gravity. And that's 
symbolized, as it were, gastronomically at the top here. Um, and that's important because if we really go back to the time when the universe was the size of a tennis ball, then quantum fluctuations could, as it were, shake the entire universe. And so we need this unified theory, which is a challenge for 21st century physics, before we can really understand what banged and why it banged, as it were. And I just mentioned that string theory is one of the ideas that's been uh, adopted, the idea that uh, uh, even space itself has a granular structure um, on a scale much smaller than ordinary atoms, just like this lectern. You can't chop it up, you get down to atoms. Space you can't chop up until you get down to some tiny, tiny scale, which is a trillion, trillion times smaller than atoms. But on that scale, each point in our ordinary space it speculated, might be a tightly wound origami in extra dimensions. And those extra dimensions determine the actual properties of space. And we'll have to have a theory like that before we can make progress in understanding uh, the real beginning of our universe. Well, I want to go back to this picture and say one uh, thing about it that's more relevant to other sciences. Um, there's a frontier of the very small and frontier of the very large. But... Most scientists are neither particle physicists nor are they astronomers. They work on things that are very complicated down here. And the most complicated things in the universe are probably us um, and uh, uh, the biological world. And uh, even an insect is far more complicated than a star. Uh, this, you may know, this is a, the flea, a famous drawing by uh, Robert Hooke, who was... Um, uh, uh, Newton's least favorite FRS, who um, designed uh, one of the first microscopes and was a wonderful draftsman, and he produced a book called Micrographia, which had wonderful pictures like this. You can imagine the public impact of, the, of these in the uh, 1660s. Um, and even this insect has layer upon layer of structure and is far, far more complicated than a star. And so that's why the greatest challenge is a challenge of complexity. And indeed, we humans, the most complicated we know about, we are, uh, in a quantitative sense, midway between atoms and stars. We take as many human bodies to make up the sun as there are atoms in each of us. The geometric mean of the mass of a proton and the mass of the sun is 50 kilograms, within a factor of two of the mass of the people here. So we are literally midway, and to understand ourselves, we need to understand the atoms, but we need to understand also the stars that made those atoms. Well, I want to just finally to uh, zoom in on our Earth. And I'm sometimes asked, does astronomy give us any special perspective on the Earth and on everyday affairs? Well, I have to say that uh, my contacts with astronomers over my career show that thinking about the vast expanse of space and time doesn't make people any more serene and relaxed about everyday matters uh, than anyone else. So it doesn't have that effect. But I think there is one respect in which astronomers have a slightly extra perspective which other educated people don't have. And this is a perception of the far future. So let me just explain this. This is a time chart of the evolution of life on the Earth. And, of course, this is part of everyone's education, unless you happen to live in Kansas or um, uh, 
or Kentucky or parts of the Muslim world. But I show this because even those of us who are entirely familiar with this, I think tend, at least subconsciously, to think that we humans are somehow the culmination. It ends with us. No astronomer could believe that. That's because we know that the time lying ahead is vast. This time-lapse drawing illustrates the life cycle of the sun <coughs> condensing from a gas cloud. It's been shining for four and a half billion years, but it'll be another six billion years before it flares up and engulfs the inner planets and ends all life in the solar system. Less than halfway. And, of course, that's only our solar system. The universe may go on forever. And to quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. <laughs> so uh, the time scale for post-human evolution is longer than the time span for evolution up till now. So any creatures witnessing the demise of the sun and sending this postcard uh, would not be humans. They'd be as different from us as we are from a bug because it's been four billion years or more of evolution. Darwin himself realized that there would be transhuman evolution. I think we would now say that that may happen even faster because evolution in future certainly for humans, will be on the timescale of technology and genetic manipulation, not the timescale of natural selection. So we can say even more than Darwin did that there will be a post-human era uh, of more variety and more wonder than what we've had up till now. And, of course, the machines may take over. <laughs> but, and this is my final thought, um, even in this concertina time span that I've sketched for you, stretching billions of years into the past and billions of years into the future. There have been 45 million centuries on the Earth so far. Even in this extended time span, this century is special because it's the first of those 45 million centuries on Earth when one species, namely ours, really has the planet's future in its hands and can make a big difference to what happens in the far future and could jeopardize life's immense potential. So this pale blue dot in the cosmos that we live on is a very special place, and we are on it at a very special time, and that, I think, is a good message for all of us, whether we're astronomers or not. Thank you. <laughs>